is a global collective of badass intersectional feminists. Our persisterhood connects women globally online and on land through activism, volunteerism, fundraising, awareness campaigns, and Prosecco think tanks. We want to welcome you to our weekly audio recording of the blogs published on Verve She Said this week. Our bloggers write from all over the world about feminist issues they give a shit about. Just like listening to a podcast, we hope by creating a Verve blog audio library, we will make it easier for you to stay in touch and be in the know about all things Verve. Welcome to the Verve She Said Melanin Takeover with me, Verve operative and blogger Chanji Mwanza. Once a month, I'll be bringing you all things melanin and shining a light on global issues from a non-Eurocentric perspective. Happy 2019 and welcome to the first melanin takeover of the year. So I've just spent the last seven weeks in Zambia working to launch my Zambian Narratives project, which has been a great start to 2019. So the Zambian Narratives project is all about getting Zambian stories out there in the world and more particularly focusing on children's books. Growing up in the UK, I always wanted a book or a resource that I could relate with, that I could see my culture as a Zambian and where I could see my languages as a Zambian. And unfortunately, that just simply didn't exist. So last year, I decided to um, write my own bilingual children's book called A Family Adventure, which has been translated into the seven national Zambian languages. With this book, I want kids to be coming up with culturally relevant stories. So while I was in Zambia, it's been, it was a great experience. There was great reception for the book. And I'm really excited for what 2019 has to offer because I'll be launching the book in the UK in March. Um, the books will be available on sale in Amazon in the next few weeks. And I basically am looking forward to making some workshops for kids to let them understand how to come up with their own creative stories and make sure that children aren't neglected when it comes to Zambian literature and Zambian storytelling. And all the proceeds from the sales of the books are going directly back to the project to make sure that I'm able to create more resources for kids and also create workshops where kids can have fun with reading, see themselves in the books and actually be telling stories that are culturally relevant. And aside from that, I've been writing about the issues that black people around the world are facing, from the use of our dead bodies as entertainment for white audiences, to celebrating African successes, such as Ethiopia's steps to reaching gender equality. With the Melanin Takeover, I aim to shine a light on both the injustices that we face, but also make sure we celebrate the successes and milestones that we reach. This week, I'll be reading some of my latest blogs for Verve and explaining a little bit about what inspired me to write the articles. The first article that I will be reading was published on Verve on January 18th, 2019. Why are dead black bodies still being used for Western consumption? On Tuesday 15th January 2019, suspected militants stormed a hotel and office complex in Nairobi killing 21 people. While a nation mourned and reeled in the pain of another attack by Al-Shabaab militants, many European and US publications, including the New York Times, the UK Mail Online and Germany's Bild, felt it was suitable to publish images of those who had been brutally murdered, their bodies slumped over restaurant tables. 
This was published before the attack was officially over, before bodies were even identified, and before relatives were given the news of the death of their loved ones. Kenyans took to social media to express their repulse at the West's media coverage. Tapkili Rop wrote, Extremely disgusted with the irresponsible reporting of the New York Times on the terrorist attack that happened in Kenya yesterday. Showing the dead bodies of my fellow Kenyans in their article contributes to the ongoing trend of desensitising people to the death of Africans and other minorities. Their apology stated that it was an attempt to give a clear picture of the horror of an attack like this was bullshit. So presumably, we will be seeing photos of children in the next mass shootout in the US so we can get a real sense of the situation, right? Meanwhile, James Siguru Wahutu wrote, African victims of atrocities such as yesterday often get their death displayed for consumption with little to no regard for their privacy or the grief of their family members. Why does the West think it's acceptable to depict dead African bodies for white consumption when this would never be the case in terror attacks against white people that occur on Western soil? You can draw parallels between the coverage of this attack and images of African Americans shot down by police. The media not only shared images of the dead bodies of Eric Garner, Michael Brown and Philando Castile, they shared videos of their last moments too. In the UK, it was easy to find videos of the brutal murder of Mark Duggan at the hands of the police. Meanwhile, in war zones, it's not uncommon to see images of non-Western soldiers or civilians lying dead in the ruins of cities that they once called home, to the point of showing dismembered bodies strewn across rubble. Yet it would be unheard of to see images of dead British, American, French or German soldiers. Following the Paris terror attacks, Manchester bombings and multiple US mass shootings, no major newspapers published images of the victims lying dead in their own blood while the attacks were still happening. There is never debate whether to air videos of the murders of white hostages at the hands of terror groups such as ISIS, yet media outlets like Fox News didn't even hesitate to publish the full video of Jordanian pilot Muta al-Kasabe being burnt to death while enclosed in a cage. The media fails to publish images of dead bodies following attacks in the West because, frankly, the victims look like them. It would be too disturbing to display an image of someone that could be your mum, dad, brother, sister, auntie or uncle. It's all about geography. If the attack happens in a faraway land to people that don't represent your own culture, who don't look like you, who are the others of the world, then the media's logic is that it's perfectly reasonable to share images of their dead bodies. I don't know who decided that we need these images to understand that 21 people were killed. It's not like people won't believe the news unless they see the dead bodies for themselves. While it is arguable that there are certain rare circumstances where sensitive images such as these need to be shared to bring attention to horrors being committed around the world, there is undeniably a double standard in how the media treats black bodies compared to white ones. These other people are presented as less human, less worthy of dignity and death, less valuable as individuals. They are depicted as numbers, hardly ever named and almost never have their individual stories told. It's time for the media to give the same level of respect to black victims as they offer to white victims. It's time to acknowledge the double standards in reporting events in the West compared to the rest of the world.
It's time to stop treating dead black bodies like pieces of recyclable rubbish that have no value other than being reproduced in the form of photographs for white consumption. I was inspired to write this article because of the social media reactions that I was seeing and the disgust that I felt when I read the article that showed dead bodies of two Kenyan men slumped over the tables. I was horrified. And to make matters worse, the way that the New York Times responded just went to show that the bias that they show. In one tweet, they showed other articles where dead white people were published in their newspaper, as if that's the right response to the situation. First of all, those articles named the white victims and were published after the attacks happened, which is completely different to this circumstance. So it's no place to make comparisons. And secondly, people are complaining about this situation. There's no use making comparisons and making it seem like this is the norm. It's not the norm to see dead bodies of your fellow citizens slumped over tables before their own families have been notified. Just think. If this had happened in the UK and there was an attack going on, would you expect to see dead bodies plastered all over the news before the event had finished? No, you wouldn't. And it doesn't stop there. What I also noticed is that although the majority of the victims who actually died were Kenyans, the media has been focusing on the stories of the one British and one American who lost their lives. These dead Kenyans aren't getting the narratives that they deserve. No one is seeking to find out their stories, to create in memoriam pages on the news for them. It just shows that reporting isn't equal when it comes to where you're from or what colour your skin is. The next article that I'm going to read was published on Verve on January 11th, 2019, and is titled Transracial is not the new transgender. Transracial is not the new transgender. Why race and gender are not synonymous. Back in 2015, Rachel Dolezal, a fully Caucasian woman who had been pretending to be black for years, came out publicly as transracial. With a completely straight face, the woman who had grown up with blonde hair, white skin and freckles said to the Today Show host, I identify as black. Since the scandal, a whole host of other transracial people have been coming out of the woodworks. In 2017, a white German model, Martina Adam, claimed to have transitioned to become a black woman after undergoing a chemical tanning procedure. She wrote, I love my ebony look very much. Therefore, I'm currently testing various things to emphasize my exotic look. My transformation to a black woman continues. I already bought me a beautiful, long, black, natural hair with Afro curls. Soon, I let my blonde hair colour change into black and get African curls in my hair. Then comes the hair extensions with African natural hair. After that, I have an appointment with my surgeon. Meanwhile, in Florida, a white man changed his name from Adam to Jadu and claimed that he wanted to transition to become Filipino because whenever I'm around the music, around the food, I feel like I'm in my own skin. He even ditched his car in favour of a tuk-tuk and created a transracialism support group on Facebook. In November 2018, it emerged that a white artistic director, Anthony Ekundayo Lennon, had been benefiting for years from an Arts Council England fund that was specifically dedicated to artists of colour. His response? 
He describes himself as an African born again, claiming that although I'm white, with white parents, I have gone through the struggles of a black man, a black actor. He decided to ditch his birth name, Anthony David Lennon, opting to go by Anthony Taharka Ekundayo Lennon, a name he picked out of an African name book. These are just a few of the public stories of white people taking cultural appropriation to a whole new level. These people are questioning why society is growing to accept transgender identities but continues to mock transracialism. They believe that race and gender are synonymous and one should be able to change their race if they feel more aligned to that particular culture. They put forth the idea that racial fluidity is just like gender fluidity and we shouldn't box people into racial categories just because of their ancestry. To put these opinions at bed, these are three reasons why transracial is not the new transgender and why we can't equate race with gender. Number one, they've appropriated the word transracial. Rachel Dolezal brought the word translational into the mainstream, however neglected to mention its true definition. Transracial is originally an academic term that refers to the act of adopting a child of one race or ethnic group and placing them into a family of a different race or ethnic group. Transracial was a term that embodied children who were stuck in between two identities. It speaks to the millions of children who are denied an intimate knowledge of their birth cultures and are constantly torn between their multiple identities by being raised in an environment different to their own racial or ethnic backgrounds. Rachel Dolezal, Martina Adam, Jadu, and Anthony Lennon have not been through this experience. They haven't grown up torn between two cultures and are undermining the identities of these millions of children they're taking away a word that explained the experience that these kids were faced with, appropriating it for their own gain. Secondly, race and ethnicity is rooted in ancestry. You can't just pick and choose. Unlike gender, which is assigned to you at birth, your race and ethnicity is rooted in ancestry. You can't inherit your gender, but you do inherit your race. The fact that these people believe that they can pick and choose parts of the ethnicity that they want and later decide to revert to their whiteness is white privilege at its worst. They have the option to decide when to carry the burdens and discrimination felt by other races, whilst also reaping the benefits by taking money from organisations created to empower and help black communities. Rachel and Anthony Lennon both benefited financially for their decision to go through adult life as a black person. Meanwhile, Jadu and Martina Adams have no doubt benefited financially from the publicity gained by coming out as transracial. They literally robbed black people of the money that they deserved and yet had the audacity to say it was fair because they felt black. Black isn't something that you can just decide to be. You can't turn around, put on some makeup and perm your hair and assume you're now navigating the world as a black person. Thirdly, they are insulting the transgender community. The whole outlook that transracial identity is the same as transgender identity is frankly insulting to the trans community. Trans people don't choose to be trans, they're born that way. Conflating these two identities implies that you can choose to be trans, and equally you can choose to be a different race. Transitioning as a trans person is a violent, painful, long and difficult process that can result in job loss, isolation and rejection. You can't compare the trans experience to some white people deciding to get a tan, perm and changing their names to something more African. There is a difference between transitioning into a new gender, which doesn't harm anyone else, 
and choosing to live a lie to the detriment of other people who form the oppressed group that you are so desperate to be a part of. The whole transracial concept embodies white supremacy and the fact that white people can continue to steal from the oppressed even by pretending to be part of the community itself. Finally, to end on a high note, the next article celebrates the forward-thinking steps that one African nation has taken to achieve gender equality. Often, when we hear about Africa in the news, or just generally have conversations about the continent, it's something negative. Stories are often about poverty, violence and inequality. So I decided to write a good news article to show that actually, as a continent, we are making immense strides to achieving equality more so than the West. The next article, published on November 21st, 2018, is titled Ethiopia is setting new standards for gender equality. Ethiopia is demonstrating that the patriarchy can be dismantled one woman at a time. Africa's second most populated country elected its first female president, Saleh Work Zelde, in October 2018. Not only is the nation ahead of over 100 countries in the world, including Spain, Japan, the Netherlands, Egypt and the US, who have never had a woman head of state, Ethiopia also boasts one of the world's only gender-balanced cabinets. And it doesn't stop there. African News reports that there is no stopping the train of women empowerment, as Misa Ashenafi has been named as the country's first female president of the Federal Supreme Court, Aisha Mohammed has become the nation's first female defence minister and Mufariat Kamil will oversee the newly formed Ministry of Peace. Ethiopia's commitment to challenging gender disparity by tackling inequality at the highest levels should be celebrated globally. It's a model that most of the world needs to learn from if we're ever going to see gender equality become a reality. So why is this such a milestone? In 2017, Ethiopia ranked 121st in the UN Gender Inequality Index, being one of the countries ravaged by the worst levels of gender inequality. The country continues to live in a highly patriarchal traditional society. USAID reports that women's resources and community participation are usually mediated through men, either their fathers or husbands, and their agricultural contributions often go largely unnoticed. In 2017, at just 11.2%, almost half of the number of girls compared to boys have access to some form of secondary education. However, the new leading women are putting peace and education at the forefront of the agenda. The recent appointment of an equal number of men and women as ministers demonstrates that the country is making an effort to promote gender equality and ensure that women are involved in peacemaking processes. The most invaluable part is that young girls and women will now see themselves represented in 50% of the country's leadership. So who are some of Ethiopia's leading women? First, we have Salewerk Zelde, President of Ethiopia. Salewerk Zelde has over 30 years of experience working as a diplomat, serving as Ethiopia's ambassador to France, Djibouti, Senegal and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. She was also the UN's top official at the Africa Union and is fluent in English, French and Americ. Misa Ashinafi, President of the Federal Supreme Court. Misa Ashinafi is the founder of the Ethiopian Women Lawyers Association and is an active women's rights activist. 
She has previously served as a judge of the High Court of Ethiopia and worked in the Ethiopian Constitution Commission as a legal advisor and helped to lead the development of the first women's bank in Ethiopia, Enet Bank. Then we have Mufariat Kamil, Peace Minister. Mufariat Kamil was Ethiopia's first woman Speaker of Parliament and continues to break down barriers, becoming the first Peace Minister. She is also the only female leader on the four-block coalition of the ruling Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Finally, we have Aisha Mohammed, Defence Minister. Aisha Mohammed was previously the Construction Minister and is the first woman in Ethiopian history to be appointed as Defence Minister. Her new role includes overseeing the country's intelligence and security apparatus, including the Federal Police Commission. The country's new cabinet doesn't just represent gender equality, but also promotes ethnic and religious cohesion by appointing ministers from often marginalised ethnic groups and Muslim women who wear headscarves. Ethiopia is setting new president for global powers, with Rwanda following suit by announcing a cabinet reshuffle that also saw 50% of the positions held by women. In the words of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, the African continent is leading the way in showcasing that women's engagement and leadership are crucial to lasting peace. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Melanin Takeover. If you'd like to read the blogs that I read today, head over to verveup.com. You can read more of my blogs by searching my name, Chanju Mwanza, on the Verve website, or you can head over to my website, www.chanju.com, where you can find out more about my Zambian Narratives project and also check out some of my book recommendations. If you have anything at all to say about what I've discussed today, email us at contacts at to share your thoughts. Thank you. And that concludes this week's blogs on Verve She Said. Join us next week for more badass blogs from your favorite Verve feminists. Remember, activism can be as simple as subscribing to Verve's weekly wrap-up and following us on at Verve underscore up on Instagram and Twitter. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks to all our listeners, followers, subscribers, and supporters. You are our sheroes. Sheroes.